0: Before we begin the show, I'm going to play you a couple of sound bites from the year that we're featuring in this show, 2010, and you guess who the sound bite is from. When you're um, forced to stay somewhere um, against your will, uh, it does become uh, something that you want to want to leave.
1: I think that's Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, talking about hiding out in the Ecuadorian embassy.
0: Correct. All right, how about this one? This disclosure is not just an attack on America's foreign policy interests.
1: Oh, that's uh, ex-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton talking about the release of classified information on Julian Assange's WikiLeaks site. Again, correct. All right, this one's tough.
0: He's clamming in your windows, he's snatching your people up, trying
1: to rape them so y'all need to hide your kids, hide your wife, and had your husband because they're raping everybody out here. That's Antoine Dodson in 2010's biggest viral video talking about a sexual predator in his Huntsville, Alabama neighborhood. Yeah, that's right. Holy crap. How'd you know that? What can I say, Ken? I'm just one worldly mofo. I guess you are.
0: Hey, everyone. And welcome to another episode of Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff. I'm Ken. And Cliff and I are two high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas
1: about U.S. history and pop culture. In each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, television shows, and songs. 2010 was a spectacular year for quality entertainment. In this show, we'll be featuring the films The Social Network and Inception, and we're only covering one TV debut from that year, The Walking Dead. And for music, we'll be hearing from Adele... CeeLo Green, Bruno Mars,
0: and the Black Keys. Cliff, let's go over the most important stories
1: from 2010. WikiLeaks was created in 2007, but over the course of 2010, the website released over 700,000 documents, many of them top secret, covering information regarding the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange became an international target, especially by the United States, who were desperate to extradite him back to the United States for criminal charges. He ended up taking refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for almost seven years before finally being arrested, and he has remained in a London prison since 2019. In April of 2010, the U.S. experienced one of the worst environmental
0: disasters in the nation's history. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill occurred off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico, resulting in the largest marine oil spill in the history of the petroleum industry. Eleven people were killed and 17 injured. The spill was finally capped three months later, but not before an estimated 170 million gallons of crude oil escaped into the Gulf and
1: along the coast. The two biggest domestic political stories were the passing of the Affordable Care Act yay, and the midterm election results. And the two of them are linked because the Affordable Care Act would have never have been passed after the midterm elections of 2010. The Affordable Care Act was a $1 trillion health care overhaul intended to expand coverage to more Americans and it's still in place today. And
0: finally, the U.S. withdrew military forces from Iraq after almost seven years of occupation there. However, Iraq was left a political mess, and within a short amount of time, ISIS would enter the picture and cause havoc throughout the Middle East, particularly in Iraq. Over in Afghanistan, President Obama ordered a U.S. troop surge in a major bid to turn the tide of the nearly 10 year old war there. Intense fighting pushed the Taliban out of some long held strongholds, but the militants remained resilient, and Afghanistan remained beset by corruption and ineffective government. 2010 was a tough selection year for movies, Cliff, and above-average year for movies. You had Shutter Island, Black Swan, Toy Story 3, I know one of your personal faves, Iron Man 3, Scott Pilgrim, How to Train Your Dragon, another classic animated film, Kick-Ass, True Grit, and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one. But we chose two that had fascinating insights about the early 21st century. The first one we're covering is Inception, a contemporary Science fiction story directed by Christopher Nolan. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio as a professional thief who steals information by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets. He is offered a chance to have his criminal history erased as payment for the implantation of another person's idea into a target's subconscious. Which is Inception. The film explores the psyche of this subconscious through a dream-sharing space containing multiple people. Sounds a little confusing, but we'll hopefully iron out a little of this in a bit. Let's first listen to a piece of the film's official trailer.
1: There's one thing you should know about me. I
0: specialize in a very specific type of security. ...subconscious
1: security. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream. And they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not, strictly speaking, legal. It's called Inception.
0: Inception plays off an idea that has been used many times in movies. And that is the manipulation of dreams to alter reality... Examples of this include total recall, Minority Report, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Avatar, Dreamscape and, and even Alice in Wonderland if you want to go back that far has toyed with these idea of dream manipulation. But Inception put a unique spin on the idea. And that has a lot to do with Christopher Nolan, the director of the film and of such other films as Memento, Interstellar and the Batman trilogy which we will certainly be talking about in future shows. A talented guy and I am totally a fan of his work. But I'm also curious about your thoughts after seeing it uh, for I think the first time. Cliff, had you seen this or any of Christopher Nolan's films
1: before this one? Well, I saw Memento, um, and I have seen Inception before. The young, you know, the young people think this movie is pretty much today's Citizen Kane. And at the time, uh, watching it, I did not like it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I did go back. Uh, and tried to give it uh, a, a go again, and I didn't like it anymore watching it again for this podcast. To me, it's just an action film posing as a thinking man's movie. Well, this is clearly a movie that
0: we are divided on because I, uh, I love this movie. It is on my top 100 of all time. Wow. And I have seen it at least four or five times, and I get something
1: out of it. Each and every time I see it, I should point out, though, I'm not, I'm not, I can't poo poo the whole thing. Uh, I found the love story between Leonardo DiCaprio and his deceased wife, who he keeps getting to see again in In his his dreams, dreams. very compelling and actually just quite heart wrenching. And I would have much rather had a movie that was based on a dead wife and her just appearing in the dreams over and over again than to then throw this entire action movie on top of
0: it. Yeah, I get it. One of the interesting things about Nolan's work on Inception is that he first developed the idea of Inception 10 years before the film's release. But he believed that he wasn't ready yet to tackle such an ambitious film like Inception until he refined his filmmaking skills on the Batman trilogy. So he made the Batman trilogy throughout the 2000s decade. He kept tinkering on the script for Inception over that 10 year period. Like most Nolan films, it forces the viewer to work hard to piece together the narrative and connect the dots in order to not just make sense of the narrative, but it also is going to leave you thinking hard about sort of
1: big ideas and how it affects your own life. At and, least it did for me. Yeah, and I mean, I the ideas are great, but I feel like the working hard to piece together the narrative in, in this particular case, you had to work too hard. One of the coolest
0: things about the film is that although it's science fiction, the film is set very much in the present. There's no flying cars, super wild contraptions, except for the device which allows DiCaprio and his team of dream manipulators to tap into another person's dreams. That device in the film is called a portable, automated, somnison intravenous device. Basically, it's a briefcase filled with a battery The fictional chemical Somosin, which enables instant lucid dreaming, a timer, and a memory backup. So when DiCaprio and his team want to alter the dreams of another person, it requires that person and a team of others to be tapped into the machine in order to manipulate that person's dreams. So I did some research on how far away we are from achieving what was depicted in the film, and it's all quite frightening. Though humanity hasn't managed to pull off shared dreams yet, science has apparently figured out the key to inducing lucid dreams at will. A lucid dream, by the way, is a type of dream in which the dreamer becomes aware that they're actually dreaming. This is, I'm sure, happened to you, Cliff. Yes, all all the time, all the time. According to research done by a Belgian group of scientists recently, increased doses of a drug called galatamine caused a major increase in lucid dreams in test subjects, and even allowed them to control and shape their experiences. In 2010, Ursula Voss at the JW Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, and her colleagues trained volunteers to move their eyes
1: in a specific pattern during a lucid dream. It's scary to think if we do get this kind of technology I mean, isn't this what eventually it's going to be used for? I right. mean, don't the, the wealthy, super powerful business people own pretty much everything anyway? Right. Like, now we're going to make sure they, ha- they have the power to get into my brain in case I come up with some creative idea for the new TikTok or Twitter or something. Right. And they, oh, we got that. Or even the idea that a TV network like Fox News,
0: not to necessarily pick on Fox News no, too heavily.
1: To. No, because they're fair and balanced. But I mean,
0: the idea that you have a corporation that's implanting ideas... Whether it's subconsciously or consciously and sort of manipulating a person's thought process is this is kind of the, the next extension of that where it's more purposeful and deliberate by sort of
1: tapping into now it. we can actually not just nudge. Now we can actually just get in and turn the switch. and right. say, sort of Vote Trump. Right. <laughs> right. Right. We'll vote Biden. Right. We don't want to be biased here. Yeah. We're fair and balanced just like Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> The other movie we're covering from 2010 is The Social Network, written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by David Fincher. The story portrays the founding of the social networking website Facebook and the resulting lawsuit centered around Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg. Let's listen to a clip from the film's People want to go trailer. on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles? I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? He stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook I the know what it says. said. So did we? A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster than any of us ever imagined. Get left behind. But sue him in federal court. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write as a check. If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented
0: Facebook. The Social Network has been called one of the best films of the 21st century. The Writers Guild of America, the union of screenwriters for film and TV, has called it the third greatest screenplay of the 21st century. Sorkin is considered one of Hollywood's best screenwriters. He's also written for theater, television, and has directed several movies. Some of his more acclaimed writing efforts include the TV series The West Wing and Newsroom. His film screenplays include A Few Good Men... Moneyball, and The American President. Sorkin's an interesting character. Supposedly he hates the internet, or at least he did around the time of writing The Social Network. Here's a quote from him in 2010... That I found There's just too much Bad information Getting out there And I have to believe That's mostly the fault Of the internet Which isn't held To any standards Of accuracy I'm not quite Getting the internet Clearly you had A very influential Screenwriter That was You know Clearly dubious About the prospects Of social networking And I think That has come to roost In 2022 Don't you think Cliff? It's it's in the roost Although this film Can easily be seen As a critique Of Facebook and social media in general, what stands out for me, at least this time after having seen it, it's the timeless Shakespearean qualities of the story itself. you got friendship, white privilege, jealousy, betrayal, the desire for connection, and above all else, power. But it's social media I want to talk to you about, Cliff. You and I are not the most savvy social media people. We recognize the power social media has in our world. We've dabbled with it here and there uh, and tried to immerse ourselves in it like many of our colleagues, friends and family members, but especially our students. 12 years after the social network, Facebook remains a considerable force, and Zuckerberg, although the face of Facebook, remains an elusive and polarizing figure. Facebook was not the first social media platform, but it has certainly become the most successful, influential, and profitable. As of the start of 2022, Facebook had almost 3 billion monthly active users worldwide. That's around 38% of the entire planet's population. Facebook has come under fire over the last several years for tolerating misinformation, fueling political discord, and ignoring copyright infringement. And we should also note that it's no longer Facebook, although that is the, the still on the masthead of the Facebook.com. Uh, Facebook has now become this bigger conglomerate called Meta. But Cliff, let's get back to the movie. What
1: were your big takeaways? I've got three quotes I want to talk about that, really, that they really stood out the opening scene of this movie has Mark Zuckerberg sitting in a bar with his girlfriend Erica by the time the scene is over they have broken up later on in the movie he runs into her at another restaurant when she was with friends and he apologizes to her and she's having none of it and she says to him, you write your snide bullshit from a dark room because that's what the angry do nowadays. You write your snide bullshit from a dark room because that's what the angry do nowadays. Uh, end quote. That really stuck with me. That, you know, thinking about the the movement we are currently in where so many people are so angry and that people are now in these echo chambers where the anger just keeps bouncing off their head, yeah. fueling their own anger. Yeah, yeah. In this next scene, Zuckerberg is talking to one of his lawyers, played by Rashida Jones, and he's talking about the Winklevoss brothers, who are these two huge, good-looking, going to be Olympic rowers Mm -hmm. played by, was it Arnie Hammer? Arnie Hammer. And they're suing him because they say that he stole their idea for Facebook. Right. And he says to Rashida Jones' character, he says, the Winklevi aren't suing me for intellectual property theft. They're suing me because for the first time in their lives, they're also, you know, incredibly wealthy, um, things didn't work out the way they were supposed to for them. Yeah classic line of white privilege
0: is that these kids have had their lives handed to them and have never had
1: a obstacle in their way. And the final uh, quote I want to throw out there um, is from Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake. Sean Parker is one of the two founders of the music sharing site that started it all, Napster. Yeah. Uh, and he plays a big role in this film, whether he actually played a big role in the Zuckerberg. He actually did as not as big as I came to learn as the film depicts Facebook just gets its one millionth customer I guess one millionth user user and Sean Parker is at this party with a bunch of underage people etc doing drugs doing you know uh, drinking etc and he, he shouts out we lived on farms and then we lived in cities and now we're going to live on the internet
0: Wow! Yeah, no, it's it's a brilliant line from Sorkin because it really shows the evolution of human civilization where, you know, back in the Paleolithic era, you know, we sort of stopped being nomads and settled down into one place and domesticate animals and food. And then we live in cities with empires. And now... We don't need any of that. Our next extension is the internet itself. Right.
1: And now we're going to actually have to teach about the internet age. Yeah. Like if we live long, you're, you're not going to live long enough. But if I live <laughs> long enough, <laughs> right, like I'll have to like, that'll be a unit where yeah. I am explaining in history about how we went from being in the real world to all going online.
0: Cliff, I got to be honest with you and the audience. I never saw the TV debut we're going to talk about before we decided to include it on the show. I'm just not a fan of zombie horror. The Walking Dead is a post-apocalyptic horror series based on the comic book series of the same name. The series featured a large ensemble cast as survivors of a zombie apocalypse, trying to stay alive under the near constant threat of attacks from zombies known as walkers. With the collapse of modern civilization, the survivors must confront other human survivors who have formed groups and communities with their own set of laws and morals, sometimes leading to open, hostile conflict between them. Let's listen to a short clip from the show's season one trailer. My wife and son,
1: they're alive. Anybody out there, anybody hears
0: me, please respond. than one thing, anyone else i see my one at
1: a time all riled up and hungry, And you watch your ass. All I am anymore is a man looking for his wife and son.
0: Although it initially seems that the only humans that are bitten or scratched by walkers can turn into other walkers, it is revealed early in the series that all living humans carry the pathogen responsible for the mutation. And the only way to permanently kill a walker is to damage
1: its brain or destroy the body entirely, such as by cremating it. I'm also not a fan of zombies or horror films or shows or things that go bump in the night and might eat my vital organs if I'm not careful. So I didn't pay any attention to the show when it debuted. To get ready for this episode, I figured I'd only be able to stomach like an episode or two before declaring the whole thing just not my cup of tea. But that's not what happened. Oh, do tell. Ken, I got sucked into this show hard. Really? Over the course of only three or four days, I binged the entire first season, oh the god. entire second season, and two episodes of the third season before the existential angst this show can't help but produce in a person. It got the better of me and I had to physically force myself to close my laptop before I had a mental collapse. Oh my god, Cliff. Seriously, I've never seen you react to a TV
0: show like this before. That sounds awful, but also fascinating. I know this show was a hit in the Nielsens, pulling in an average of nearly 20 million viewers during its peak and often landing in the first place in the coveted 18 to 49 demographic. What was it that got you so hooked so
1: quickly? Why did it become so popular? Well, first of all, the warning labels for each episode promised the following. Language, violence, nudity, gore, and smoking. Wow. (laughs) Right? Rock and roll is not included in that? No. So I found that very odd. But I was hoping, of course, then, that I might see a little skin if I went beyond the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. But that sadly didn't happen. It turns out the only body parts you get to see are those of putrid, rotting corpses. (laughs) Yuck. (laughs) But by the time I realized this, I was already into the second season. It turns out The Walking Dead is actually a very thoughtful meditation on the difficulty of retaining one's humanity amid dire circumstances. Okay. It plays more like a Holocaust drama than a horror pick. Interesting. It really gets you thinking about life and death hope and despair, hence the existential angst that finally forced me to stop watching it. You can't help but put yourself in the shoes of the characters and ponder how you would handle such a bleak, frightening existence, especially as it applies to your own morality and ethics. All right, so one of the elements of the show
0: that really intrigues me, and I want you to expand on this, is this idea of community building and preservation. How does Walking Dead represent
1: those ideas, Cliff? The possibility of total extinction? It really makes these characters aware of that old saying that it takes a village to raise a child. You can't make it for long in such a brutal world on your own, so you have no choice but to form bonds with other people, to start putting the common good Over the needs of the individual They all become socialists And it's no good (laughs) to just stay alive right? You need a reason to do so You need a world worth living in And so these characters struggle Together To create such a world Albeit against impossible odds
0: Well then how would you Contextualize this show In relation to what was going on In the nation and the
1: world In the 2010s I probably shouldn't have to say this, but as a species, we're not in very good shape, Ken. Uh, While it's hard for Americans to think beyond the political woes that have been rapidly tearing our country apart in the 21st century, we've got bigger problems on the horizon. Climate change and global warming are threatening us all, as are rising biological issues like COVID-19 and the monkeypox. I think one of the reasons why this show was such a big hit with its American audience has to do with how it taps into a concept as old as the hills in America, namely that of the frontier. Oh, right. right? The American story has always been about encountering and overcoming new frontiers. A zombie apocalypse is just the 21st century version of this old story. It's fascinating. I think that's a really good premise. Many... Historians would guide us that part of the reasons why we were so lost uh, is because we have no more frontier, that the frontier was such a, played such a prevalent part in our American identity. One, once we had no more lands to conquer, no more westward expansion, we kind of uh, lost our and it was supposed to be space, right? We, that was the next frontier, yeah. but, you know, at least in our generation, that hasn't come to fruition yet. But um, and I, guess, th- I guess you could say the internet is the frontier, but I, I think, I mean, it is, really is. They're trying to make a life in a world where it, you're in constant danger mm-hmm. and you don't have the certain things that you could rely on, like, you know, like infrastructure right. Right, you could rely on yeah. in, in the past.
0: All right, let's talk about the music of 2010. First, a little bit about the state of the music industry by 2010. Total revenue from U.S. music sales and licensing plunged to a little over $6 billion in 2009. This was the ninth consecutive year of declining revenue for the music industry, hitting musicians the hardest. The bitter irony was that although the internet exposed consumers to more music than ever before, that accessibility had proven more difficult to monetize in a world still dominated by illegal downloading. Again, by 2010, you don't have big services like Spotify and Pandora. According to one online tracker company, the volume of unauthorized downloads represented about 90% of the market by the start of 2010. The good news for the industry and some musicians was that the popularity of streaming services like Pandora, Apple, and Spotify
1: would really take off in the early 2010s. They so really were a good idea. I yeah. Mean, because, I mean, we got to the point where we were so used to getting our music now for free, yeah. illegally, I can sign up for this service And I, get access to everything And yeah. I only enter my credit card once and In being a, a music um, thief yeah. You really sometimes had to dig And then you also had people like yourself That just refused to share I the music I refused to download. share yeah, no, this Spotify, no problem Yeah, I'll pay that monthly fee for whatever it is Because now I have access to everything Yeah,
0: No, it completely changed the music industry environment The music of 2010 was interesting Predominantly dominated Not surprisingly by pop tunes, like this one, Just the Way You Are, the hit single from Bruno Mars' debut album, Doo-Wops and Hooligans. Cliff, what's your take on Bruno Mars and this song? I had no take on Bruno Mars because
1: I had never heard Bruno Mars. Seriously. No, I heard the kids. The kid's always talking about Bruno Mars, you know, back when he first came out. But I'd never heard anything, so, you know, I did listen to this song, and I have to tell you, when it first started, I was thinking, "Oh, dear God, Ken, why are you making me listen to this kind of crap?" But just, just poppy—it's disposable pop. Who, who cares? But I will say this: the chorus takes it up a notch. Okay. Right? I mean, it 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 changes. Um, into a much more driving, focused kind of song, a a more, I don't know if it's anthemic. It, It just becomes much more urgent and the sound he ends up creating I mean, but the problem is, is What happens is it goes back from the the chorus Back into the verses And then the verses to me are just They do nothing for me Yeah, I mean, Bruno Mars represents Sort of this generation's Michael
0: Jackson People Ken? of our generation would argue That something that Bruno Mars doesn't hold a candle I would say, them's big shoes Yeah But, I mean, it's that idea where you're crossing over into various genres, and this is what Bruno Mars does so well. He includes elements of pop, Motown, rock, reggae, hip-hop, and soul, and and he sort of mashes it together into a hooky, poppy sound that, you know, it drives the girls crazy and the guys on the dance floor. And I think he does it very, very well. I've, I've never seen Bruno Mars in concert, but I've had people who have seen him in concert, and will attest, the dude is electric. On stage. This kind of music is disposable pop, and yet, you know, that is what
1: America has craved from early beginnings of pop music. Bruno Mars actually had a hand in writing this next big hit from 2010, but chose not to record it. Maybe because it was a little too risque. Alright. So instead, CeeLo Green recorded it. Word of warning, folks, we are going to play the original unclean version. It's Mm -hmm. Fuck You by CeeLo Green. In this version of the song, CeeLo drops 16 F-bombs in just three and a half minutes. There were at least four versions of the song released. The one that got the most radio and music video play was titled, A Lame, Forget You. Yeah. There is definitely something
0: about the the F word used in a song like this that packs a very very powerful punch. I remember listening to this song the very first time it came out and thinking to myself, "Man, this is this is a risque song." I remember it, hearing the the F bomb version, and uh, I love the song from the first time I heard it. I will, I can listen to this song tomorrow and every day afterwards, and be
1: completely drawn into it. I love it. Love and this song. I, and, and I would say too, is this was going to be some of this disposable pop that I was just going to immediately not like. And I found myself going, you know, wow, we got something going on here. Yeah, no, not, it I'm, not, just, I'm, not, I'm not just talking about, oh good, someone saying fuck you. Yeah. I mean, there is the part where he, at one point in the first verse, he says, you know, ain't that some shit? And then, the, the you know, the, va- <laughs> yeah, the backup girls <laughs> or whatever, uh, I'll, I'll sing along. Ain't that some shit? I, I thought that was just genius. yeah brilliant, yeah. right? You know, what CeeLo Green, what this song sounds like to me is that imagine if Motown just started in 2008 or 2009 or right. something. Right, This would be the kind of artist that
0: they would be signing. Yeah. It's a hooky R&B hit, Mike, like any of the Smokey Robinson or Stevie Wonder early hits. That There is something irresistible about the hook of the song, and, and it goes to the fact that it's It's danceable
1: It's sing-alongable It's just a classic R&B hit Mm -hmm. I've heard the name CeeLo Green Yeah I had never heard Anything by him And this is one of those like Controversial
0: figures CeeLo Green I mean he got himself Into trouble A couple years ago um, Via social media When he Said some Off-color things In regards to Date rape
1: uh, Issues But Now uh, now, um, I had one thing To go on with CeeLo And I was gonna be a fan And now Yeah Fuck you (laughs) CeeLo
0: Although the song was interpreted by many to be about a spurned lover, the song's actual roots are based on the frustrations of CeeLo trying to get his songs released. Here's a quote from Green soon after the release of the song, quote, I'd been recording for three years, and I had over 70 songs, and I was ready to be heard, but my label was just sitting on it, and it was very disheartening, not knowing if what I was doing was good enough. So, of course, figuratively, I was like, you don't like me? Well, fuck you. It was very cathartic. There is definitely something cathartic about the phrase fuck you. And uh, listen, Cliff, you and I have definitely dropped our share of the F-bombs over the course of our lives. And um, What are you talking about, Willis? It's always amazing to me that some, and I've worked uh, as a carpenter, I've worked in restaurant business, and I think one of the most foul mouthed group of
1: people I've ever worked with are public high school <laughs> and, teachers. And, and it makes sense. Don't they have uh, some things to, to To vent? To vent about? Yeah. There's a fire starting in my heart, reaching a fever pitch, and it's bringing
0: me out the dark. Full disclosure to everyone listening. I am a big Adele fan. I consider her one of the best female vocalists working today. This song, Rolling in the Deep, is one of my favorites from her. I remember exactly where I was when I first heard this song on the radio. I was in the car driving my son to swim practice. I think he was in like 7th or 8th grade. I knew immediately it would be a hit and it would seal Adele's destiny as a superstar performer. Interestingly, the song was written as another fuck you message, but not towards any record label like CeeLo Green's story. She has described the scathing heartbreak anthem as a reaction to, quote, being told that my life was going to be boring and lonely and rubbish, and that I was a weak person if I didn't stay in the relationship. I was very insulted and wrote that as a sort of fuck you. Cliff, Adele, Rolling in the Deep, where does it stand in the context of 2010's
1: music? Well, this shouldn't blow your mind, though it will. This was my first time hearing Adele. Oh my god! Holy <laughs> oh crap! Are I'm, you serious? I told you I'm out of touch. And so, do you at least respect her pipes? Oh no, she's got the pipes definitely. And this song, yeah, it, it, there was there was some. I felt kind of like I was at the hoedown, you know, like I should. I'm kicking the boots up and like you know, should oh, be waving the mic like, 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 it, like, it is definitely spirited but, you know, anthem, but 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 more um, not country in terms of. Country, as we think about it today, no, but I mean, no, I country you. in terms of like rural, like right. out there at the hoedown, woo yeah. like fo- foot stomping. Yeah, there was some foot stomping with this song. Yeah. Right, where she fits in, I just know that she's like one of the one of the voices now. She's become sort of a torch song singer in the last 10,
0: 12 years since the release of this particular song and album. Uh, some of her more successful hits Are sort of torch ballads But I love the music That sort of moves
1: along A little bit more On a faster pace And this song does it for me I guess And one of the things I do know about Adele Is uh, she was I don't know what she looks like Currently now But when she came on the scene She was a a, a bit overweight I was just going to say People pointed out That she was not bone thin Yeah Right And that uh, you got to have some respect for the folks who make it in these kind of industries mm-hmm. when they put so much emphasis on you've got to look right, right. i mean because sadly for um and it's men too but sadly for for women singers yeah they want to know are you going to be christina aguilera or britney spears right or who's the, who are the the um, cardi b and these other Megan mega the style. Style, like can we strip you and can we sell your sexuality as
0: effectively as we can your art right, and yeah. she made it with just going listen to me sing yes yeah, one of the 21st century's greatest talents right.
1: we had to include at least one rocker in the mix for 2010 and we chose this one from the black keys and the biggest hit of their career tighten up
0: I love the Black Keys because they represent one of the only 21st century rock acts that are respectful of the blues influence in rock.
1: Like you would talk about the Black Keys being a rock act and I would be thinking they don't sound very rockish and I struggle to think about what they really did sound. I guess my thing is i i tend to think of that word rock and i get i get stuck in the idea of it's got to be like you know hair rock from the 80s bang or your head or yeah it is plays around with a lot of the genres mm-hmm. and that there's been a lot more swing and movability to rock than just this straight bang 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 right. they're a rock act in an old school style in that they are willing to get some R&B, willing to go into their their bluesy roots. Yeah. They're also purists about rock
0: and they've gotten themselves into trouble for criticizing rock acts that are crossover rock pop acts like one of our favorite bands, Cliff Nickelback, who we talked is about how
1: we remind you. you.
0: They've also been criticized, most notably by Jack White of the White Stripes, for being too derivative of blues legends and their riffs. The Black Keys are basically two guys, guitarist Dan Auerbach and drummer Patrick
1: Carney. It It makes sense. You're telling me that... One of the dudes is the drummer, yeah. Uh, because that was one of the things that stood out on this particular song was the drumming. Yeah, uh, it does this. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it does this almost like stutter step that he's playing on the snare drum. Like he kind of does a beat and a beat, and then he does this kind of like step back uh, on the on the on the, on the sn- roll on the snare drum, and then he goes forward again. Yeah. Here's a quote from Carney, the drummer, that really
0: puts into perspective the band's philosophy. And, quite honestly, something that could have easily been said by you, Cliff. Oh. Quote, Rock and roll is the music I feel the most passionately about. And I don't like to see it fucking ruined and spoon-fed down our throats in this watered-down, post-grunge crap. Horrendous shit. Hallelujah. When people start lumping us into that kind of shit, it's like,
1: quote, Fuck you. Once again, and for the third time in this show, the 2010 theme of Fuck You rears its profane head. And yes, you are correct. I'm now going to have to go and listen to more Black Keys, because if this is the way they feel about rock and roll music, it it does very much match um, the way I feel. It's
0: time to pick our favorite release of 2010, and I'm picking a movie, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. It's a romantic action comedy film co-written and produced and directed by Edgar Wright and based on the graphic novel series Scott Pilgrim by Brian Lee O'Malley. It was a box office bomb that failed to recoup its $85 million production budget. I never got around to seeing it until seven years after its release, but I was wildly entertained, and I've seen it at least several times since. If I had seen this as a 21 year old, it would have easily been one of the best movies I've ever seen because it's clearly oriented towards a younger audience. And although I saw it as a 50 year old, it had some very clever, unique elements that just resonated with me. I love comic books. I love Michael Cera. I love video games. I love indie rock. I love quirky, funny dialogue. I love campy action scenes that don't take themselves too seriously. And this film delivered on all those fronts, big time.
1: My personal favorite entertainment release of 2010 is the film *True Grit* by the Coen Brothers, starring Jeff Bridges, Haley Steinfeld, Matt Damon, and Josh Brolin. Not to be confused with the 1969 film of same name starring John Wayne, Kim Darby, and Glenn Campbell. Both films, by the way, were based off of Charles Portis's excellent. 1968 novel, True Grit. You've read that too? Yeah. The plot is pretty straightforward. you got a 14-year-old farm girl named Maddie Ross, and she hires Deputy U.S. Marshal Reuben J. Rooster Cogburn, played by Jeff Bridges, who's a boozy, trigger-happy lawman, to go after an outlaw named Tom Chaney who has murdered her father. The bickering duo are accompanied on their quest by a Texas ranger named LaBouffe. Uh, who has been tracking Cheney for killing a state senator. As the three embark on a dangerous adventure, they each have their grit tested in various ways. It's Jeff Bridges' performance as Rooster Cogburn that's just absolutely beautiful, particularly his voice. It's got to be heard to be believed.
0: Don't believe in fairy tales or sermons or stories about money, baby sister, but thanks for the cigarette.
1: I used to, I haven't watched this movie for a while because I once I watch it, then I can talk like him. Yeah. And then I just want to talk like him constantly.
0: Yeah. Hey, well, that does it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode, the history, films, music, and TV discuss, please visit our website, KenandCliff.com. There you will find links to additional reading, Spotify song lists, letterbox lists, and an opportunity to contact us
1: about what you like and don't like about the show. Make sure to listen to next week's episode when we cover 1977. It's another exceptional year for music, so we've decided to do what we did for 1971, which was split the year into two shows. In the first part, we'll discuss the films Star Wars and Saturday Night Fever, and the TV shows Roots, Three's Company, and Soap. In the second part, we'll cover albums from such artists as Fleetwood Mac, The Clash, Meatloaf, and Steely Dan. Please share Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends, family, Mark Zuckerberg, any Walking Dead you might encounter. You can always find us on kenancliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. We also want you to submit a review of Yearview Mirror on any of the podcast platforms you use, or let us know your feedback on the Contact Us link on our website homepage. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. Yeah,